Our reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 59 and Isaiah chapter 63, starting with Isaiah 59, verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation was on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay, wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. From the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, um, how about uh, we pray before we continue to reflect on God's word. Lord, you know far better than we, the different obstacles that stand in the way of us hearing what you want to tell us. And so in our own weakness, we again turn to you, asking that your spirit would work powerfully, that you would speak truth to our hearts, that you would help me to speak in such a way that is helpful to us as a church, 
that more and more our hope would be in you and that our ways would be your ways to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, many years ago, when I was first kind of being trained to teach the Bible, one of the first um, instructions I was given that's really stuck with me is that when you're reading the Bible, you should be looking for the surprise. And, and what the person meant by that is that oftentimes, especially for people like me who've grown up in the church and you feel like you've heard the Bible a lot, um, you can kind of just assume that whatever you hear is just going to conform to what you already know. You're going to assume that everything says stuff that you've already heard. And the danger with that is that the whole point of Scripture, of, of God's Word, is that there's a lot we don't understand. There's so much about God that we don't see. And so we need to be confronted by it. We need at times to be confused. And so the instruction was look for the surprise. Look for those moments that God is showing you something that you didn't understand before. And I think that actually really um, is very pertinent to the passage that we are looking at this morning. So we are, you might remember from previous weeks, that, that chart, that mountain, we are near the very peak of the mountain. Isaiah 56 to 66 is this one continuous, um, kind of almost echo. It, it starts kind of low and moves up till this final vision before then kind of coming back down on the other side and repeating some of the themes that that we started with, which is why you might notice we're looking at two passages. It's kind of like two corresponding related to the same idea. And, and at this top, which is right where we are, at this apex, we have this, this beautiful vision of God's salvation. It is supposed to be the very heart of Isaiah in some way, telling us this is where our hope lies. This is why we can have joy. This is our salvation. And and you see actually in our passage a number of clues that are pointing to that's what this is about. So, so if you look at, you know, in, in 59, it says, uh, in verse 16, it talks about how God's arm brings salvation. And then again, if you look at your page, verse 20 of 59, it talks about a redeemer will come to Zion. And then again in that passage in 63, there's this mysterious figure and he's depicted as one who in verse 1 is mighty to save. So here we have this picture of salvation beginning in 59 and kind of concluding in 63. That's probably not surprising to us. What is surprising is that what these two passages celebrating the salvation of God are focused on is his wrath. So 59, which in some ways looks forward and 63 kind of looks backward. 59, you might notice it says in verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries. That's This passage is speaking about God's anger. But what's just already started at in 59 then becomes especially apparent in the imagery of 63. So maybe you saw this, maybe you didn't when you were hearing the reading, but let me try to help us to imagine. 63 I think is meant as a conversation between a person at the gates of Jerusalem, a, a watchman, he, he sees someone in the distance coming. And, and you see as he describes this person that this person's impressive. It says he has, you know, he's adorned in impressive garments. They're, they're the sign of wealth. They're the sign of power. He looks kingly. But, but even more than just his garments, it, it says he is um, greatness of strength. There's something about his walk. There's something about the way he carries himself that just projects power and confidence. 
And so the watchman, as he sees this person slowly coming to the gates, asks the obvious question, who is this? Who are you? And, and the person answers kind of enigmatically, it is I, which doesn't seem terribly revealing, of course. But then he says more. He says, it is I speaking in righteousness. Righteousness is things being conformed to the way they should be, they ought to be. And so speaking in righteousness means he's not only speaking truth, which he is, but he's speaking in such a way to bring wholeness and healing. His instructions, his commands make things right. And then he also says, and I am one who is mighty to save. Not only his words, but his actions are making things right. He is a savior. Um, if you've been with us for a while, maybe you remember way back in Isaiah chapter 9, there's this image of light in the middle of darkness. To us, a child is born, and he will be this, this great savior, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, he'll see no end. He will bring righteousness. There's all these images of this savior who speaks on behalf of God, and, and here he comes, right? That's, I am mighty to save. I am the savior. And so this is good news. Except then the conversation continues. And, and so the, the, the watchman realizes as he's coming that, that he looks red, but he maybe at first thought that that was just the natural color of his garments, but he realized that's not, it's stains. And so he says, it looks, it looks like you have been treading a wine press. You know, wine was made by people stomping grapes in this kind of round area that would drain. And, and it looks like your, your garments are stained by the juice of grapes, he's saying. And, and this, this warrior, this savior, says, in a sense, I have been. I have been treading the wine press of the peoples. And my garments are stained with their blood. Now, we're meant to understand by a people something very specific. You might remember at the very beginning of 63, it speaks of who is this who comes from Edom. Basra, which is the capital of Edom. Edom was from basically the beginning of Israel's history, the arch rivals of Israel. They were the ones who were always against Israel. When Israel was conquered by Babylon, they were the ones who were celebrating. And so over the course of the Old Testament, Edom began to represent more than just that people. It, it became representative for the enemy. The, the enemies of God perhaps through, even throughout the world, the enemies of God's people who opposed God's people. And so that's what we're supposed to understand here when it says he's coming from Edom. He's saying, I have come from the enemy and I have conquered them and I have utterly destroyed them and they are dead. The savior is also the destroyer. And it says he came with wrath, with vengeance. The, the one who brings mercy is also the one who exerts vengeance. And this isn't the only place that we see this in Isaiah. This tension, and I think we should be feeling a tension probably. It, repeatedly, we see side by side this, this hopeful message of salvation with this reality of God's judgment and wrath. So if we were to skip ahead to chapter 65, we would see God saying, You who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who worship false gods, I will destine you to the sword and you shall bow down to the slaughter. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness, but you shall cry out 
and pain side by side, the joy of salvation and the wrath of God and judgment. Or, or if you were to turn to 66, 66 has this final picture of salvation where people from all over the world are brought into worship. And yet side by side, we have, behold, the Lord will come in fire to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. There's salvation, and there's judgment, and, and they seem intertwined. And it's, it's not just actually in Isaiah. A very important passage even for understanding this comes to us in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, at the very end, right before we see the beautiful city in all its glory, we see a warrior figure. It speaks of one who is seated on a horse, and, and there's a lot that tells us, including the name that's given to him and all the symbolism, that this is Jesus that we're seeing. And, and it says, in righteousness he judges and he makes war. He is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So what that tells us is that this vision that, that Isaiah speaks of in 63, it is actually speaking of Jesus. That's what Revelation tells us. So the very person that we've seen earlier, that the servant of God who came in humility, who did not cause, force his voice to be heard, who spoke, who suffered on behalf of his people in mercy, is the same person that we see here in 63, who comes in might and impressiveness and strength, having conquered the enemy. Do you see? The, the, the Savior also we see as the judge throughout the Bible, where we see salvation, we also see judgment. Where we see mercy, we also see wrath. And, and that's not accidental. We're, most, we're, spent, we're meant to understand those two go together. In fact, these passages are meant to, it seems, give us hope, which seems awfully strange. We, we, we don't normally associate wrath with hope. But when you think about it for a moment, they, they, they must go together. You can't have love without anger. If you love someone deeply and you see them being hurt and abused, what would apathy in that moment suggest? No, you're going to be angry with that. And you can't have salvation without destruction because salvation is from something. It is from some kind of enemy. Now, in Isaiah, our understanding of what the enemy is is meant to have kind of developed and grown. Very early on in the book of Isaiah, you would say probably the Israelites think of their enemy as other nations. Maybe at first Syria, then Assyria, then eventually Babylon. But if we are listening to the prophecy of Isaiah closely, we realize that it's much more complex than that. Because Isaiah speaks of God's desire to bring people from all across the world. No nation is God's enemy. He longs to rescue all of them. And at the same time, we also see that there are some people of Israel themselves who end up becoming enemies of God, who turn their backs on God. So it's not other nations that are the enemy. 
And it's not even like there's just good guys and bad guys everywhere because everyone starts off in rebellion and yet God extends his mercy to all those who turn to him. And so over time, what becomes apparent is that the enemy, the real enemy, is, is the power that goes deeper than all of these things. It's, it's what we might call evil or what the Bible regularly calls sin. So perhaps you might remember even last week in this lament, this cry of helplessness, it was a cry that said, we have sinned. How long shall we continue in our sins? Iniquities have carried us away. They have melted us. There's this awareness that the deepest enemy is how sin itself has taken control and has destroyed. And, and what, what the hope of these passages is, is that we have a God who is not content to let that enemy just stay there. We have a God who, because he passionately loves his people, is passionately opposed to this evil that seeks to destroy them. And that's where the hope is. And, and here in our passage, really, we see hope in two forms. We see that we have a God who, when it comes to evil, sees what we will not see. And we have a God who can do what we cannot do. So, so let, me, let me consider with those, especially in, in chapter 59, which, whereas 63 is the imagery of this wrath having been accomplished, 59 sets things up and helps us to understand what's being talked about and why, why there's something about this that is meant to give us hope. So 59 begins with a fairly bleak picture, and it's, frankly, a picture of, of us, of our world. So verse 14, hopefully you have it in front of you so you can see it with me. It says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. I wonder how, when we think about this as a description of our present day, if that feels to us maybe overly grim, overly negative. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. But let me just think with you for a moment about the reality in which we find ourselves. Let me just ask this basic question. Let's, let's say two young men were arrested on the same charge. Both of them Let's say both of them, there was an amount of drugs found in their car that made it a felony. So it's a significant amount. Let's say it's the same drug. Let's say it's the first offense for both of them. But one of them is the son of a rich white family in, say, Glen Ellen. And the other is an African-American Southside Chicago living only with his mom. Now, let me just ask you, if you had to predict... What's the likelihood that you think there would be of them both getting exactly the same outcome? Of them both getting the same representation, the same sentence, the same level of punishment? How likely is it, do you think, that they would be treated the same? And we know the answer, right? What does that say about our society? What does it say about our world 
that something like what happened to Armand Arbery happened. And not only happened, but if it weren't for that video, it may well have been that people got away with it and were never punished for what took place. Or what does it say about our world that time after time, men in positions of power are able to use their power to take advantage of women while other people turn a blind eye? What does it say about our world that thousands, even millions of innocent lives are lost in the womb, not for anything they've done, but because they are not wanted? Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. And this passage traces that lack of righteousness and justice to a lack of truth. Truth has stumbled in the public squares, it says. And, and that's true, right? I mean, how often do we even hear people presently speaking of trying to get to the truth of the matter? I want to get to the bottom. I want to understand what is true here. In some ways, that language of truth is almost kind of thrown out because, well, each of us have our own truth. That's what we're told. I don't even know what that means, except I think what it's basically saying is, is we don't really know what's going on. It's all confusing. So ultimately, you're going to believe what you want to believe. That's at least the cynical take, where, where there is no hope of actually seeing truth. Truth has stumbled in the public square. And it says, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Let me just ask you, if you knew someone who was truly honest, principled, genuine, a man of, or, or a woman of deep integrity, how likely do you think it would be that they would be able to be successful in politics? He who departs from evil makes himself prey. This is the world that we live in. And, and my, my purpose in this is not to bash America if anything, I think America is one of the places in the world where we have the greatest chance of seeing justice compared to, say, countries with dictatorships or with an extraordinary amount of corruption. My point is to say this is our world. It is the world being described here. It is a world that's broken. And perhaps what should most disturb us is that we are just kind of numb to that. It's not that we're okay with it. We, we see the problems with it. But don't you think we should be more bothered than we are, generally? There's a kind of complacency, and if we're honest, I think part of the reason we're complacent is because we're kind of at the top of the, of the pyramid. We have the power and the wealth. We're not feeling the negative effects that others do. And so we just kind of accept it. But our passage, we, we get to look through a different pair of eyes than our own. Notice what happens after it says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. Literally, it was evil in his eyes. So you think of how when God created the world again and again, says, this is good, it is good, it is good. He is looking at the situation in this world is finding itself in, and he says, this is bad. I'm reminded of a couple that I knew of who started dating, I think it was in their late 20s, and and the guy in the couple was maybe what you would call a very stereotypical male, or probably more to the point, his, his place was a stereotypical bachelor pad. I mean, there was like no decorations to be found. The furniture was all just kind of 
junky things. There was like almost no furniture and, and what was used somehow was even still able to be a mess. It was a dump. And the first time his new girlfriend comes and sees this place, she, she looks around and I don't know exactly what she said, but essentially it was to the, to the effect of, how do you live like this? And as her boyfriend looks around, now he has lived here for a while. It's like though he sees it again for the first time and he's suddenly embarrassed and he realizes, oh yeah, this is really bad. And I, I want to say that I think there's an aspect where that's what we're meant to have happen here. That as God looks, he sees what we have stopped seeing. He says, this is bad. If you go on, you notice it says, he saw that there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede, that there is no one capable of resisting this, of, of bringing a solution. And notice how it says, he wondered that there was. That's unfortunately not quite the strongest translation that could be there. The word is talking about something that's visceral. The NIV, I think, it captures it better when it talks about, and he was appalled. He was deeply bothered by what he saw. And if you think about it, that actually is it's a really wonderful thing. Imagine if that's not how he responds when he sees this world. If he said, okay, you be you to this world. That kind of apathy, what would that signal? But that's not what he has. He's not apathetic. He is somehow so deeply connected to this world, to us, that when he sees it, he is appalled. Verse 17 speaks about him getting ready to act. And, and one of the words that's used here is zeal. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And that word zeal is just another word for being passionate. It's, it's for having so deep of an emotional response that it moves someone to action. And that's what we have here, that, that God so deeply cares that he cannot be complacent about this. He, he looks on us and he wants better for us than even we want for ourselves. He has in his mind a vision of how this world should be, of the beauty, of, of the peace, of, of, of justice, of people being able to exist alongside of each other in delight. And he is so committed to that and he so cares about us that he's like, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not okay with this. I am going to act. There is, there is wrath because he cares. If we want an, an image of, of this level of, of love working itself out in this way, just Think of Jesus. Think of how he comes into the temple. If you know the temple architecture, you know that the outer court was the one that was specifically reserved for the Gentiles. They were not allowed yet in, but the outer court was almost meant as a hope, a promise of how even these have a place and one day they will belong. It was part of what mattered to God that this could be a place of prayer for the nations. And yet over time, it was no longer a court where prayer could take place. It was a marketplace it's where they sold sacrifices. I mean, animals for sacrifices and exchanged money. And when Jesus comes in, he is furious. He turns over the tables. He sends the animals out. He is filled with wrath because of his love, because of what he wants for his people. And it says 
that the disciples later on remember this story, remember what happened, and a verse came to their mind, zeal for your house will consume me. It is because of the love of Jesus for the world that he was angry with what stood in the way. And, and that's part of the comfort that we have in our passage. That even when we have been numbed into complacency and have stopped being able to long for what we should long for, God has not. And he will not relent and he will not be content until the world is as beautiful and as good for us as he is intended to be. And so he will be angry toward that evil that stands in the way. He is zealous. And that zeal means he will act. Not only does God see what we will not see, but he does what we cannot do. Again, if you look at verse 16, remember how it says, he saw that there was no one, no one to intercede. That is, there's no one who was able to resist, who could truly stand in the way. And, and chapter 63 speaks of very similar things where 63 verse 3 speaks of, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. This is basically saying there is no one in humanity who is capable of resisting evil in the way they need to be. There is no one who is able to overcome the enemy. You know, I've been thinking about this in relation just to the way that we encourage each other. You know, there's a diversity of understanding of how parenting should take place, but there seems to be kind of this one uniting feature, and that is parents are supposed to be telling their kids, you can do it. doesn't matter what it is. You can do it. So, you know, you can finish this project. Don't worry, you can do it. You're worried about the test. Don't worry, you can do it. You're worried about playing baseball and doing well. Don't worry, you can do it. And of course, that's not just parenting. We continue to do that. A good friend will be, when someone is worrying about a job interview, they'll say, don't worry, you can do it. Again and again, we keep hearing, because this is, I guess, what we're supposed to hear. You can do it. But what happens when you can't? What happens when you're over, so overwhelmed by anxiety that you just can't face what you need to face? What happens when you just feel utterly unmotivated to do what you know you should do? What happens when you, when you know that you need to let go of your anger, but deep down you don't want to? Or when you know that you should be more generous with your time, with your possessions, but there is just not the desire in you to let go of them? See, this is what this is talking about. Each of us have, in some way, some aspect of sin that on our own we cannot overcome. You can't do it. That's, that's what this is telling us. But what this is also saying is that when God saw this and he was appalled, he said, then I will. I will be the one who does what you can't do. So it says, after he wonders, it says, then his own arm brought him salvation. And there's this imagery of the arm that keeps on coming back in Isaiah. And it seems strange to us at first until we think about how we actually use similar imagery. So we talk about someone rolling up their sleeves to get their hands involved or getting your hands dirty. These are metaphors for what? For, for personally becoming involved. And that's the idea here. God is saying, I am going to step in 
I'm going to draw near and I'm going to do this. And in the subsequent verse, we see kind of this preparation where God arms himself with armor. And, and the different elements are meant to tell us both about who God is and what he's going to do. So there's two that speak of the motivation, his, his righteousness, his commitments to what is good and fulfilling his promises, and his zeal, which we spoke of, the armor of righteousness, this cloak of zeal. And the other two speak of what he's going to accomplish. There is the helmet of salvation. So he is going to bring about salvation. And there's also the garments of vengeance. And it's important that we see both of those together. Because this isn't just venting of anger. This is a vengeance that is being accomplished for the purpose of making things right. So in verse 18, when it says, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. That first word, so he will repay, is from the word shalom, literally that word for peace. And it signals to us what's going on. He is making things right. Because the only way to make things right is to end what is wrong. The only way to overcome injustice is to bring about justice, which involves punishment. He is doing what we cannot do in resisting evil, but the goal is always restoration and wholeness. And so we see the outcome intended. Verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. It is, it is making things right. It's verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion, one who redeems, who rescues. That's his purpose as he acts in this way. It's verse 21, where it speaks, where God says that now that I have done this, my spirit will stay with my people and my word, my truth will stay. In other words, you have been rendered utterly compromised by the power of sin, but I'm going to step in. I'm going to overcome evil. I'm going to place my powerful spirit and my word in you so that truth will no longer stagger, but will have a place among you. So that now by the spirit, you have the power to begin to pursue what is right and just. God is saying, I will do what you can't. And, and if we wonder what, what's being spoken of, I should say this is not just talking about that last day where Jesus judges and, and brings everything to conclusion. God rolls up his sleeves. He, he bears his arm when Jesus comes into this world. It says that when Jesus comes, he exposes the evil. When he goes to the cross, it says he conquers the evil one. He has conquered Satan and sin on the cross. That is part of the work of wrath, God pouring his wrath upon the injustice and the sin of this world. And, and whenever people place their tr trust in Christ, God does in them something that they cannot on their own. He begins to put to death this sinful independence. He gives the spirit. And if you think about Ephesians, remember when Paul speaks of now put on the armor. What is it? It's the armor of God. It's God's armor. He gives us his righteousness, his helmet of salvation, so that we can join in with him in doing battle and joining in, in being zealous and wrathful, not towards people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the injustice, against the evil. Now we, with God, can pursue what is right. And that is the hope that God does 
for us what we cannot do, and he then empowers us to join. As we understand God's wrath, we see God overcoming the complacency, the powerlessness we have. He sees what we won't see. He, he does for us what we cannot. That's salvation. But as I conclude, I should probably just, I want to point out one other thing because I think it would be irresponsible if I don't. And that is, it's clear throughout Isaiah, and especially at the end, that in the end there are two groups of people that, that God is speaking about here. There are the people that we've been focusing on, the people like who have responded in weakness. Remember the previous chapter where we talked about people who have just lamented, who have called out in hopelessness, and God has turned to them and rescued them. There is that group of people. That's the ones we're talking about, about God bringing salvation. And yet there is a second group of people who, who do not respond, who choose to stay committed to their own way, to the way of sin and evil, even as God invites them to do. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about like just like an Adolf Hitler, the evil, or, or people who are just like horrifically terrible. It's talking about people who just consistently say, I don't really want God in my life. And, and when we're talking about wrath, it is a comfort to those who experience God's mercy. But it is a terrifying reality for those who reject it. There is nothing more frightening to me than this reality, that there are those who, after a life of consistently rejecting God's mercy, will only experience the white-hot wrath of God, and that And so, so I want to say to us, to all of you, the very words that God says in, in Isaiah 55, when he says, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous his thoughts. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Here is a time where God may be found. He invites all to turn to him in their weakness so that he might do what they cannot do and he might be their rescue. And so whether we are those who have already entrusted ourselves to Christ or those who need to and maybe can right now the first time, I'd like to invite all of us in humility to come before God and acknowledge our own weakness and inadequacy and sinfulness and turn to God for help. So let's spend some time in silent prayer and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, I thank you that you communicate to us a thoroughly realistic picture of who we actually are. That none of us can stand before you on our own merit. That none of us can make ourselves right. And you know that. And, and even in spite of that, you come to us. You have given yourself to us in Jesus. You have rescued 
us and you you call us to yourself. And so, Lord, we acknowledge our sins before you. We look to you for forgiveness and for help and for strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Listen again to those words that were spoken from the very beginning of Isaiah to encourage and call his people where he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Believers, God demonstrates his love for you in sending Christ. In Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.